And a song like this means a lot to me, more than it ever has. When you've got more folks on the other side than you've got here, well, you know what I mean. Some of you old-timers here, few of you managed tonight. Maybe you've got enough of the crowd over there that the scales are tilting the other way. Then you know what this means. And I thank God for it. I hardly know what to preach about tonight. By the time I was making up my mind. One thing I'm glad I came here for, I found out how long I'm going to live. <laughs> I've been wondering. It makes about three times now that pastor's got it figured out 25 years. I think he's overdone it myself. But it's encouraging to have a little leeway, you know. Thank you, brother. Don't, don't mark it down. I mean, hold it up there. I may not make it, but it's interesting to know. <laughs> wouldn't you like to know? No, you wouldn't, would you? No. Well, that's another of those things we leave with the Lord. It's a good thing we don't know. In the last six verses of the ninth chapter, of Luke. We have what I used to call in a sermon that I haven't preached in years and years, three perils of Christian discipleship. The peril of the uncounted coast, the peril of the unburied corpse, and the peril of the unforsaken circle. And it came to pass that as they went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Two texts. This middleman, the one I'm concerned with tonight, the second of this trio, said, Suffer me first. And in Matthew 6.33 we read, Seek ye first. The first is man talking to the Lord, and the second is the Lord speaking to man. Life is a matter of priorities. And the quality of our living is determined by those things to which we give first place. But with too many of us, the first has been last and the last has been first. And the biggest business we have today is to rearrange our priorities. Now this middleman said, in effect, really, what he meant was, my father's old going to die one of these days and I must take care of him and bury him 
Then I'll follow you. You will be next. But Jesus said, and I like one of the translations that puts it, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach. This is really a text for preachers because this man was called to preach. Jesus is saying, I don't come next. I come first or I don't come. Jesus Christ does not play second fiddle. If you forget everything else I say tonight, the subject is God never comes next. And the third man said, Lord, I'll follow thee, but... There are a couple other things have to be attended to. I've got to tell the folks goodbye. Then you'll be next. Jesus said, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back fit for the kingdom. I'm not uh, inviting folks to go to heaven backwards. The kingdom of God is no place for a man with his face pointed one way and his feet the other. And over against this you have Matthew 6:33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, what things? Well, he's just been talking about what you eat and what you wear and the common concerns of life will be added, they won't be subtracted, they have their place, but it's not first place. Now there's a place for taking care of our loved ones, of course, and 1 Timothy 5.8 says we're worse than infidels if we don't. And there's a time and place for farewells. But Jesus Christ does not come last or next after everything else has been set in order. He demands more allegiance than any dictator ever demanded. And he has a right to because love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Jesus Christ didn't come around just politely suggesting that you give him everything. He demands it. I get nervous when I hear congregations singing so carelessly. Most of us are unconscious when we're singing anyhow. Because if we ever came to, we might choke up before we got to the chorus. <laughs> and I hear people singing, Savior more than life to me. And I feel like stopping right then and saying, Is he? Is he more than life to you? Jesus is all the world to me, is he? Thou from hence my all shall be. <laughs> That's a farce with most people. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. Jesus Christ was severe in his terms of discipleship. He said, think not I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace but a sword. I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, there isn't any way on earth of toning that down. That's all or nothing. I read in Luke 14 that there went great multitudes with him, and he was popular, and therefore he was in a dangerous position. And he turned, I like to think of him as suddenly swerving around and facing that crowd, 
with an upraised hand and saying, and he gave them three count-offs in a row, and that's poor psychology. That's negative. We're not supposed to do anything negative, you know, now. Everything must be positive. Jesus said, If any man come to me and hate not father, mother, wife, children, brethren, sisters, yea, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot, number two, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And then he told two little parables, for which of you intending to build a tower? Now look what comes next. The Holy Spirit is so careful to include every detail. Sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it, lest haply after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it. All that behold it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus said, I want you to sit down and figure the cost. Don't rush precipitately into the kingdom of God. Don't you know what you're doing? And then he says the same thing in the next parable, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first. And the Holy Spirit doesn't use any unnecessary words. Sit down and figure it out. And consulted whether he be able with ten thousand to meet him that cometh against him with twenty thousand, or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth an ambassage and desireth conditions of peace. So cannot number three, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Now I don't hear much preaching about this. I, I can't understand uh, Either we are asleep when we hear it, or we just say, well, that means you've got the mean business, and so on, and it does. But this is severe. Jesus was popular, and the crowd was after him. He could have built up a great mob and swept the whole country, but he turned and said, hold everything now. I want you to know what you're doing. I read that when the Israelites left Egypt, a mixed multitude went with them out of Egypt, and when they got out in the wilderness, they went to pieces because they weren't right to start with. The church turned the world upside down for a couple of centuries until Constantine became emperor of the Roman Empire, and he became a church member, became religious, and people started joining church right and left, and that just about ruined us. We never have got over that. It cost something before then, and now everybody, it's quite the thing. Be a church member, it helps you to get a job, maybe. Helps your position in the community. It's the thing to do. From then on, we've had trouble. Constantine started out to Christianize paganism, and he wound up paganizing Christianity. God's not interested in statistics. So Gideon had 32,000. God said, you've got too many. If you'd win it, you'd brag about it the rest of your life. So we'll whittle it down to 300. <laughs> I'd like to see some Baptist promotion expert trying to explain that one. <laughs> He'd say, 32,000, you need 50,000. 
Let's start putting on watermelon spreads and all kinds of things to get the folks out. I was with Bill Bennett in his church. It's the largest Baptist church in Arkansas, Fort Smith. And we had a lot of people forward the invitation. Looked good. Bill stood beside me in the pulpit and said, Too many. Too many. He knew that crowd. Old Joshua said that. In the 24th chapter of Joshua, they had a big dedication meeting. Joshua told them how good God had been to them. He said, I don't know what you're going to do, but it's for me. In my house, we'll serve the Lord. And they said, we will too, and it looked great. And Joshua said, you can't serve God. God's holy and God's jealous. I've heard you talk like this before out in the wilderness. Next thing I knew, you were dancing around a golden calf. It's about time we recovered that note today. We're so anxious to build up a big membership, but who would think of emphasizing the fact that it's going to cost you every blessed thing you've got to be a Christian? Now, that's right. Everything you have. That's why the young ruler couldn't make it. He had too much money in the bank. I said last night, God's a Jealous God, Exodus 25, 34, 14, Deuteronomy 4, 24, 5, 9, 6, 15, Joshua 24, 19. Now the marriage relationship all the way through the Bible is a figure of the relationship of Jehovah and Israel in the Old Testament and Christ and the church in the New. Romans 7, 4 says that we're married to Jesus. If you're a Christian, you're married to Christ. A woman, when she marries a man, takes a new name. And if she's the right kind of woman, she won't do anything to bring reproach on that name. When you became a Christian, you took a new name. You became a Christian. But oh, what reproach has been brought on that name. My Lord said... In Matthew 19, 5, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. 1 Corinthians 11, 3, I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Ephesians 5, 22, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands, as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself. And the wife see that she reverence her husband. Whenever you are unfaithful to Jesus Christ, no matter what the reason is, 
You are an adulterer and adulteress. In the sight of God, in James 4, 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses. And this doesn't merely mean physical adultery. It means spiritual adultery. Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Family life in America is breaking down as never before. And uh, we've discarded the Bible stand on marriage and listen to crackpots. I heard some woman on TV today from New York or somewhere saying that marriage ought to always be conditional. Ought to have a clause in it that allows you to break it if you don't like it and can't get along. Well, they're doing it anyhow. Uh, without that, Authority has given way to anarchy. Man is supposed to be the head of the home and woman the heart of the home and any home with two heads and no heart is a monstrosity. No wonder they can't get along. I heard of two old folks in a rest home the other day. She couldn't hear very well. And he was trying to make her a little happy. He said, I'm, I'm proud of you. And she said, hey. And he said, I'm proud of you. And she said, I couldn't hear you. She said, I'm proud of you. Yeah, she said, I'm tired of you, too. <laughs> well, they do get tired these days. Now the church has taken the cross out and put in cushions, and the lordship of Christ means nothing. What started out as a sheepfold looks more like a zoo today. Uh, church membership's just a credit card that costs nothing in life and worth nothing in death. And when husband is no longer the head of the house and Christ is no longer the head of the church, you're in trouble. The scriptures are rigidly and explicitly uh, without exception or qualification on this one thing, that when a man or a woman contemplate marriage, the woman or man they think of marrying must come first ahead of everything else in this world. Everything. That is, under Christ, you understand, he comes first above all. But I'm talking about on the human level. No extenuating circumstances, no ifs, no provisos, no reservations, none. Marriage ceremony says, forsaking all others, will you cleave unto him or her only as long as you both shall live? If they don't do it to start with, they won't later. And anyone or anything that takes priority over husband or wife is out of God's will and God's plan. It may be something good. It may be worthy of love and devotion. A high place in the affections, but never should come first. I know a man years ago whose wife put her mother first. He wasn't first. Then what a time he had. Now this is a figure of our relationship to Christ, that happy band, that bond that seals our vows to him, our Savior and our God. Paul was a jealous preacher. I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy, for I've espoused you to one husband, and I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. Now we're seeing a parallel today in the home and in the church. When husband and wife fail to be first in each other's affections, the home breaks down. And when Christians do not put Jesus Christ first in their lives and in the church, the church breaks down. It may sound harsh what Jesus said about discipleship or what he said about husbands and wives. 
but the happiest homes are where it's practiced. I had 33 years of it. I know. And the happiest churches are where Jesus Christ is Lord. It works. God set it up that way. And we're in trouble now because we resent this sort of authority. And Jesus is not only first, he's last. He's Alpha and Omega, and all the other letters in the alphabet ought to fit in there. Anything else beside which he is second is an idol, the dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be. Help me to tear it from its throne and worship only thee. God tried out Abraham to find out what came first in Abraham's life. Abraham had two sons. The first was born of the will of the flesh and out of the will of God, and they called him Ishmael, and God took him, and he never did come back. And all the Arabs today came from Ishmael. And then God turned around and said, Now I want Isaac. Isaac was the miracle boy. Every Jew in this world today is the child of a miracle. There wouldn't be a Jew if there hadn't been a miracle. Sarah and Abraham were too old to have children. And there wouldn't be a Christian but for a miracle boy. Jesus Christ was a miracle child. And if you're a Christian, you're a miracle because you've been born twice. And the church is a miracle. And so God said, now I want Isaac. And old Abraham got his stuff together and took the boy and up the mountain they went and stretched him out for the offering and raised the knife and God said, hold it. I see that you mean business. I'll take the will for the deed. God sometimes asks you to do things that he won't let you do when he sees that you mean it. He tries you out sometimes. When he sees that you are willing, then he may not require that you do it. I read over in Malachi, he said, why, if the governor came to see you, you'd get out the best lamb and fix it for him. Why don't you do God that way? If you offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? Offer it now to thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Said the Lord of hosts. 